we're talking about genetic diversity then. So we've got all sorts of genetic diversity within populations um, of, of different species. So we can see dogs are a great example because of the amount of, of breeds, types of dog. I mean, there's some fantastic um, different um, phenotypes that uh, dogs exhibit. Um, phenotypes um, is the, the sort of observed characteristics of the individual. That's what its phenotype is, its external looks. Um, versus its genotype, which is its genetic makeup, which, which makes the basis of that. Um, so we've got this whole variety of within species variation within the dog species. And then obviously we've also got between species variation. Uh, the grey wolf is a very close relative of the dog. Um, so you can also look at the genetic differences between these two species. Um, okay, so we've it is genetics, um, so I am going to do a little bit of genetics, so I hope that will be okay with everyone. I'll try not to um, bore you too much with this, but I thought as a genetics talk we should do some genetics. Um, so this is just an example to illustrate the difference between phenotype and genotype. So as we said, phenotype is the observed characteristic. So what we're looking at in this case with these two dogs, we've got um, a black-coated dog and we've got like a, a chocolate-brown coated dog. Um, so that's the phenotype. The phenotype is brown hair or black hair. Now, the genotype, um, that's um, determined by the, the, the underlying genes that result in that colour. So we've got this pigment gene. It has two variants, uh, two different versions, a, a black hair version and a brown hair version. Um, another, another word that's used, which you'll, you'll hear sort of come up frequently, um, is allele and all an allele is is a different gene version this one here that's one allele that's another allele that's all this it is it's a different version of the gene so nice and simply excuse me as you might expect um, our black coated dog here has two of these big B genes so those B's it's, it's just representing that that one version of the gene um, as, as you hopefully will all recall, um, dogs are like humans, they're diploid, they've got two copies of every gene. They get one copy from their mother and one copy from their father. So we've always got two, two copies of the gene. So uh, black-haired um, dog, two big bees, two, two black pigment genes. The brown-haired dog, uh, two little bees, which is two of the, the brown versions. So that's nice and straightforward. But then we have something like this. Ah, we've got a, a golden-haired dog. Now, it could be that there is a, another, there could be three variants, there could be a golden-haired gene, but we know that's not actually the case. So what's going on? Well, there's actually a separate gene, which is called E, for whatever reason, and this gene determines whether the pigment is deposited in the coat or not. So if you've got this, this double E genotype, double capital E, you can deposit colour in the coat. Great, so our two dogs at the top there must, must both have big E's because they have the pigment and they're depositing it in their coat. Now if you've got the two little E genotypes, you cannot deposit colour in the coat, even if you make the pigments. So even regardless of what variation of pigment genes this dog has, it cannot deposit it in the coat. So we know it must be it must have this little e phenotype. What we don't know, without doing any more genetic studies, as to which one of the pigment genes it actually carries. It could carry one or the other, we can't tell. 
Um, and this is actually an example of something called epistasis, but that's going into more detail than... Sorry? You can. You can. They're called heterozygotes, where you've got one version of each allele. These are all homozygotes. It's a good question. Actually, can anyone tell me why you think it's more likely that they have their homozygous? Yep. It might be. It might be. I have to admit. Yeah, no, it, it might be. I, I don't know, to be honest. But um, do you, can you think what reason there might be for the fact that these are homozygous? They've, they've got the same variant in every case rather than one of each. What do we know about dog breeding? Dogs. Exactly. Dogs are bred to be purebred. They're, they're pedigree bred, which means you get a lot of inbreeding in dogs. And when you get inbreeding, you get a lot of the same variants brought together because of the similarities between the parents. So actually, in most cases with dogs, they'll be homozygous at, at a lot of genes because of the inbreeding that, that's present within, within dogs. And it's another reason why you get a lot of the genetic traits that are associated with particular breeds as well. Yeah? That's a good question. There is, this, is, this is a 2 g example, so we've tried to keep it sort of simple and explain the concept. In reality, there are thousands of genes which control a whole number of things, um, such as the, the coat colour and where the, the pigment is deposited. Um, you can have, um, I don't want to get into too much detail, but you can have um, different cells producing different proteins, which is what causes things like patterns in coats. Um, so really, it's, it's the interaction of genes and on, a, on a huge scale, um, and we've looked at two there. It's usually much, much more complicated than that. It's normally thousands of genes all interacting together with a lot of traits. Okay, so that's, that's our little bit of genetics. We'll leave that behind, um, but you sort of hopefully think back to that later when we start talking about inbreeding. Um, so just to summarise, genetic diversity, it's one component of biodiversity. It's no more important than ecosystem diversity or species diversity. It's just another component. It has its place, particularly in rare or endangered animals, as we'll, we'll see later. Um, and it represents the range of genotypes found in a population, species or group of species. So it's the gene pool of that species, all the different alleles and, and gene variants that they have for that species. Now, the only way you can generate new genetic diversity is through mutation. That's the only way. You can introduce new variation into populations by gene flow, by crossing individuals from a, from a separate population. But the only way you can generate new diversity is through mutation. Um, mutation is often viewed as a, something very negative. Um, it's got negative connotations. Actually, we, we rely on mutation um, for... Um, evolution, because without genetic variation, evolution, natural selection has nothing to act on. So we rely on mutation to generate the different variants that natural selection can then say, that's a good one, that one can go through and, and breed, and, and that's a bad one, and, and that one's not going to go through and breed. Um, so it sometimes has negative connotations. Actually, every single one of us um, in every generation has something like 100 to 200 individual mutations in our DNA, um, different from the, the generation before us. So all those mutations all the time. 
um, but they are very rare. Um, you get something like one mutation in every three, uh, sorry, one mutation in every 30 million bases of DNA. So they, they're very rare. <laughs> DNA does a very good, um, very good job of uh, copying your, your DNA faithfully when it's replicating. Okay, and it can also be described by some of the terms there, which we won't go into. Okay, so here's another one for you. Which one of these populations do you think has the greatest diversity? Have a quick think. Who thinks it might be population one? No one? Population two? Okay, great. <laughs> right answer, of course. But if you look at it at a, at a purely the number of gene variants we have, the number of alleles we have, we have exactly the same number of alleles in each of these populations. We've got one hazel, one brown, one blue, one green. Same here, one, one brown, hazel, green, blue. So we've got the same number of alleles. So what's the difference? Well, clearly we've got a much, much more sort of varied number of alleles within this population. There's a, a greater abundance of each of the individual alleles than there is in, in this other population, which is much more dominated by this, this one particular version. So again, this is something to keep in mind as we go forward when we're thinking about genetic variation, why it's important um, for particular species. Where we have a situation like this, where we have a very homozygous population, not much genetic diversity in terms of the abundance, if, if say these are a lions in Africa and we have one catastrophe, a, a tree lands on one of them, maybe it lands on this, this green-eyed one here, that individual is lost from the population by chance. It happens. Particularly with small populations, chance plays a much greater role. That could be a very beneficial phenotype. You know, I don't know, green-eyed lions might see better in the dark. <laughs> it's, it, it might be a beneficial genotype. That's been lost from the population. It can't be gotten back. With this population, if the same thing happened, we've got backup. We've got a variety. We've got greater genetic variation, not just in the numbers, but also in the abundance. So it's worth keeping in mind. Okay, so why is it important? Why is having this diversity important in populations? Um, well, it's obviously, it, it is a major focus in conservation biology. Um, and we'll look at the two main causes. We'll take each one in turn and have a look at some examples. So, loss of diversity is often associated with loss of reproductive capacity and fitness. Now, what fitness means in a, a biological sense, um, it's not how strong you are or how fast you are. It's how good you are at reproducing and sending your genes into the next population. So the, the more offspring you can produce, the more fit you are in a biological sense. Okay, so this is um, an example of what can happen when we have um, inbreeding. So thinking about that reproductive the importance of that sort of reproductive capacity and what loss of diversity can do to that. If we've got two Shetland ponies here, this is just an example I pulled off Wikipedia to illustrate it again. We've got, say, a mother and a father pony. Um, we've got this one recessive allele. That could be anywhere. You know, we've all got small recessive alleles. Normally, we've got a copy, a dominant allele, which is producing the protein or whatever it is that's necessary to compensate for that. So we don't notice it. There's no effect. 
but she is a carrier, say, at that point. Now, she, she mates with um, another horse, perfectly normal at that point, remembering that these alleles are, are rare, so the chances of, of getting two together are relatively um, infrequent, um, and they produce three offspring there. Um, now, by chance, you'll get some that, that get the, the big copier from each, and you'll get some that get the, the little copier from the mother as well as the big copier from the father. If these two horses were to breed together, so inbreeding, breeding between closely related individuals, what we, are, what we can get, 25% of the time, one in every four, those two recessive deleterious alleles will come together. And that's going to result in a disease phenotype, whatever it is that that, that particular deleterious allele, allele relates to. Now, outbreeding again, obviously much less likely to happen. You'll get carriers, um, but the chances of them coming into contact with another individual with that recessive allele is much lower. If it's within the same family group, that recessive allele is hanging around in there. Yeah? No. No, not always. <laughs> Quite. They've actually shown that Neanderthals um, had red hair actually when they sequenced the Neanderthal genome. So people with red hair might be more closely related to Neanderthals. Who knows? <laughs> um, so take, thinking of that example, we've got a real, we've got an actual real case of that happening in practice here. So um, mentioned King Charles II of Spain, um, not our King Charles II. Uh, this is something called, uh, this family was called the Habsburg dynasty, the Habsburgs family. Um, King Charles of Spain was actually known as Charles the Hext, um, El Hesiado, I think my Spanish isn't very good. Um, but um, Charles suffered a whole range of emotional, physical, mental um, disabilities. Um, he was unable to produce an heir which ultimately ended the reign of the, the Habsburgs um, over Spain, Austria. Um, um, and the reason behind that, if you look at the family tree, there have been some studies done. Um, his mother here um, was actually the, the result of a uncle-niece um, marriage. So very highly inbred. We've got another uncle-niece marriage here between, um, where are we? Um, Anne of Austria there and, and Philip II, so Philip III of Spain, again was the, the result of an uncle-niece. And we've got a whole range of sort of um, first cousin uh, marriages. So by the point we got to poor Charles, um, that family was so inbred, um, he was unable, he was impotent, he was unable to reproduce, um, as well as a whole range of uh, other physical and uh, mental um, disabilities. Um, and it led to the extinction of this, this particular European royal dynasty. So inbreeding is, is a bad thing. It's, it's not something that, uh, it's something that should be avoided when you, we're talking about um, conservation genetics. Now that's a, a rare event because obviously in most populations, most natural habitats, we don't get selective breeding. We get um, more random breeding, um, other in dogs and royals. <laughs> so. Um, what normally can farm animals who get selective breeding because you want the, he the heifer to produce a calf that's going to produce even more milk. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's another example <coughs> of, of human artificial selection. Um, but when we're talking about conservation genetics of um, <coughs> species within in the environment, 
um, generally it tends to be non-random mating. To an extent, obviously, there's issues of geography and, and so on. They can only mate with people within their locality. They might be fragmented environments. Um, do you need a drink? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> um, so what more generally is the cause of inbreeding in, in wild populations? You're absolutely right. <laughs> obviously, within selective breeding, you do get um, uh, inbreeding as a result of the selective breeding. Um, but what's more usual in wild habitats is what's called the bottleneck effect. So this is where we get a dramatic reduction in population size due to a sudden change in the environment. It might be a fire, it might be a flood, um, it could be something that's caused by humans. Um, who knows? Um, so, and genetic diversity as a result is reduced. So this, this sort of um, analogy they've used here, if this is your original population, uh, little coloured balls in a bottle, if you have a bottleneck event, only a certain number of those individuals survive. Uh, this is the surviving population. You can see that the, 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 by the colours of the balls that um, only a small amount of the genetic diversity is actually passed through. And now even if that population recovers in size, remembering that mutations are very rare, that population is going to maintain low levels of genetic variation. Um, and we can actually use this actually to sort of track species back and work out where bottlenecking events happened in history. Um, it's called the founder effect. Um, a few individuals become isolated from a larger population with the result there's a reduction in genetic diversity. Um, I'll jump through this example quickly. Um, the Illinois greater prairie chicken is a good example of um, what we've just been talking about. Um, it originally had a population in the US of about 100 million birds and then the Europeans arrived and shot and ate and hunted it um, until in 1900 there were less than 50 birds left. So this was a very small population that had been reduced down to. Um, it led to the loss as you might expect to most of the species diversity um, and concurrently fitness was reduced. In um, in the 1900s, I think the um, breeding success rate, the egg hatching rate, was something like 93%. By 1994, it was 34%. Massive reduction in, in breeding fitness. Um, conservation measures were put in place in 92. Um, they removed the inbreeding effects. So again, considering the genetic diversity issues within the population, by crossing to unrelated birds from other states. So to an extent, you are losing some of the, um, the subspecies, as it were, some of the sort of pureness of that particular population of chickens. Um, but um, due to this, um, breeding rates, success rates of um, hatchlings is back up to 94%. So that's purely a conservation measure based on knowledge of the sort of basic genetics and inbreeding effects of that small population size that you're starting with. Okay, so... That's the first part, loss of diversity associated with loss of reproductive capacity. The second part, uh, genetic diversity is required for populations to respond to changes in the environment. This might be more along the lines of um, uh, what you're familiar with by way of adaptation or evolution. They have to have that variety to be able to respond to the different environmental challenges that they might come across. And here's a really good example. This is an example, um, again, if we're going to be completely selfish in terms of sort of human um, requirements and needs, 
this is a very good reason why conservation biology and genetics is important to the human race in general and not purely as a sort of recreational save the polar bears they're kind of nice to look at activity um, <laughs> rice grassy stunt virus was a virus that hits the rice crops in the 1970s it was a very aggressive virus it absolutely decimated crops across Asia caused um, something like 70% reduction in the amount of um, yields that was being produced of rice. Rice, obviously, a very important crop. It feeds 70% of the world's developing population. It's, it's very important. Um, and included things such as this so-called miracle rice that was, um, you know, these high-yield rice breeds, monocultures that they'd come up with at the time, just decimated. Now, what they had to do was they had to go through all the wild subspecies of rice to try and find one variety that had resistance to this disease. It, they went through coming up to nearly 7,000 varieties um, that they actually tested and in those only one of them had the resistance that they needed. So luckily for them they bred it into the, um, the crop plants and within a couple of seasons the, the rice plants were back up to the yields that they were previously. And that's all from the genetic diversity of one small wild rice plant, um, very weedy, not particularly high yield, not particularly considered important um, by, by the locals. Um, and in fact the, the sad end to that story is that particular variety is actually extinct in the wild now. Um, they have seed banks where they keep, which are very important um, in terms of agriculture, ensuring that you keep that genetic variety somewhere safe. Um, so even when it's lost in the wild, which inevitably a lot of them, them are. And again, that's a difficult, a difficult sort of ethical question, um, because when I was over in Nepal, um, we found we, we, would, we were testing genetic diversity in the wild populations of rice. Sorry, do you want to? Quite possibly right. Do you remember? That's do you remember what sort of what particular crop it was? Because I've got no, to say, I'm it was a big for every seed. all seeds. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I know there's ones. I know there's one in Russia that they're trying to save at the moment. I haven't heard of a Swiss one to be honest. But then I did concentrate on rice. So, yeah, I know. I know there was one in Russia which they're trying to save. But um, you're probably absolutely right. Yeah, that that makes complete sense. Rice banks are so important. Um, yeah, they do. I mean, we'll, we'll see some of the local, the UK varieties in a moment. I'll, I'll carry on, actually, because I'll probably run out of time otherwise. But uh, enough to say, just, just in terms of the ethical implications, sorry, I didn't mean to, we will, we will come back to that. Um, but um, in terms of the ethical implications, telling a local farmer that he should leave that wild patch of rice alone and not pull it up to grow crops for his, to feed his family and make money for his family, how do you do that as someone that's just coming over and going, you know, there's a lot of diversity there, you leave it alone. You know, these people rely on, on growing these crops for their livelihood. So it's not as simple as just sort of saying we need to preserve it and leave it alone. It's certainly more complex than that. And this is a nice statement by Elizabeth Hadley, um, who's a researcher at Stanford University, um, does ecology um, in invertebrates. Um, the, the nice bit I like about this is, is the analogy. Um, genetic variation is the toolkit for dealing with whatever the environment has to throw at you. If you have only a couple of tools 
you don't have a loss of resilience for dealing with an unexpected event, which is a perfect, perfect way of describing it. Um, the, the really curious thing she says is how the species managed to persist for around 3,000 years with almost no genetic variation. She's actually referring to the human species. Because actually we've found now, now we've done genetic studies on humans, that humans have very low levels of genetic diversity. Um, and they think we came through a population bottleneck ourselves, similar to what we saw earlier. There was a founder effect. Um, it all sort of relates back to the out of Africa for theory. A small founding population of individuals left Africa about 100,000 years ago, somewhere between 10 to 50,000 individuals that then colonised the whole of Europe into Asia, the Americas and the rest of the world. So all of us of European, Asian, you know, um, Australian, American origin um, result from that one founder population. And the genetic variation within Africa is much, much greater because they were the they were the founding population, as it were. So it's a little bit of evidence for the um, out-of-Africa theory with some moderations. <laughs> um, so how is genetic diversity lost? Well, as we've said, environmental change, catastrophes, habitat destruction, um, and also genetic deterioration through inbreeding. And just sort of extrapolating that out a little. Um, some of the other causes of genetic erosion. Uh, Over-exploitation of species, it's very sad that we seem incapable of realising when we're driving a species to the sort of you know, minimum population sizes that they actually need to be sustainable. I mean, fish is a fantastic example. Um, the, the way we cope with our sort of fishing, um, the scientists every year say this is what the quota should be and then they increase it by about 50%. Um, the latest research on Atlantic bluefin tunas, which are very popular in sushi apparently, um, is that we've only got another three years of fishing at the current levels before that population reaches um, critical capacity where it's going to, the actual breeding population size is going to be so low that it's going to cause serious problems for that species. We've got invasive alien species. So probably the most popular one everyone knows is the grey squirrel. That's an out-competing Thing. So they outcompete the red squirrel, they drive the red squirrels to smaller population numbers because of the competition. Same things, we've got th things like Japanese knotweed, cicadea, um, these parakeets that you see all around London now as well. Um, all have, the, the, you know, they're all competing with the native species. And again, you know, as you said earlier, I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing. Maybe that's the way the world works and um, species move around, species go extinct, new species come in. Who's to say we have to preserve it exactly as it is at this moment in time? Um, and obviously the most critical one is the degradation, fragmentation and destruction of habitats, which unfortunately is usually human-caused. Um, human um, so we've, we've already talked about the displacement of land races by modern varieties, that shift to monoculture, land clearing, overgrazing, population, obviously climate change is the, uh, the one of the moments. Um, so this diagram really just sort of shows what we've been talking about and how it all fits together, which is you, you have things like habitat loss, pollution, over-exploitation, exotic or invasive species, and that leads to small fragmented populations of, of the particular species that are affected. That leads to inbreeding, which leads to loss of genetic diversity, leads to reduced adaptability, they've got less resistance to any changes in the environment. 
um, reduced population size, or that's all that the end means, population size. So all it will take is one catastrophe, one environmental variation, small change in demographic, and that species is gone. And that's the extinction vortex. Um, so as you were saying earlier, sir, um, there are some genetic, much genetic erosion actually in the UK, um, uh, different species of uh, plants in the UK, um, different agricultures. Apple was one that um, I found particularly surprising actually, which is we had something like 7,000 varieties of apple just um, less than, well, just over 100 years ago. Um, and now we've got less than a thousand um, in that time, and that's all due to the shift in monoculture, um, which is a real shame because that's genetic variation that we can't get back. It's lost forever. Okay, so why do we use genetics in conservation? Um, well, good breeding and wildlife management programs, as we saw earlier, need to be aware of it. They need to be aware that the, the species that they're introducing and, and mating to sort of um, increase the numbers of that population are not so closely related as to, to cause issues within breeding. Um, and also, of course, if we know the levels of genetic diversity, um, we can work out which populations are more susceptible to future reductions in fitness and we can concentrate our conservation efforts on, on those species. Um, I thought I'd end on a little bit of a brighter note because it all seems to be doom and gloom and we're destroying the world. Um, but there are some species that are fighting back in their own way, and the cheetah is one of them. Um, cheetahs are well known, I'm sure you're aware, for having low population numbers, um, and they've also got low levels of genetic diversity. Um, they barely made it through the last ice age about 10,000 years ago. They suffered a, um, a, a severe bottleneck, which really reduced the population, reduced the, the genetic variety, and then again, with humans, the hunting, the land encroachments, it, it's reducing the population numbers again. Um, and this makes them vulnerable, obviously, to complete loss of beneficial gene variants. So it's that green eye example, it, you know, one beneficial variant, it can be gone in a generation because there's, there's just not enough numbers and variety. Um, however, it seems female cheetahs have evolved a strategy for improving the genetic variation in their offspring. Um, not intentionally, I'm sure, but um, it's sort of an evolved mechanism um, that seems to be introducing um, more genetic variation into the population. Um, and this is how it works. So, did you know that female cheetahs will mate with multiple males? Um, and they will actually have litters of cubs which have different fathers. So, in one litter, they can have any number of cubs that are unrelated in terms of the paternal um, inheritance. Um, and as a result, they get greater variability within that cubs because they've got three different fathers. They're sort of, you know, they're not putting all their eggs in one basket, as it were, with, with one father. So the chance that all cubs will be susceptible to a new pathogen is much lower. Um, and this is what's actually happening with cheetahs. Uh, now, they don't know whether this is because of the issues with genetic um, diversity diversity. What they think might be some sort of alternative hypotheses um, is that with big cats, very often the fathers will kill the young cubs um, when they come across a new female so that they can mate and sort of pass on their own offspring. Now if, if this, this lady cheetah is mated with three or four different males, none of them know which of the offspring is theirs. So there is a theory that says it's a way to prevent um, infanticide in in cheetahs, and in fact, cheetahs do have a much, much lower rate of infanticide than other big cats. 
So that's an alternative um, alternative idea as well. Um, do the same thing? Oh, in terms of, don't they always? <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm sure they'll take every chance that they'll, they'll come across. Um, there, is a, there is another argument, actually, that it's just easier for female cheaters. It's, it's less energy expending just to mate with every male than to spend time and energy fighting them off. So, again, that's another, um, um, another theory, as it were. But either way, the, the, the sort of end result is that you get much greater genetic variability in the cheetah population, which is a good thing, certainly, um, for the, the continuation of that species. Okay, so summarising what the talk was about really, which is biodiversity, so what? Why is it important? Well, it's a critical component of biodiversity in general, alongside species and ecosystems. And that needs to be recognised in conservation and, and is. Um, loss of genetic diversity, as we've seen, reduces the ability of species to evolve to cope with environmental change. And it leads to inbreeding, which leads to, to reproduced fitness. And they're of conservation concern because they increase the risk of extinction. Um, and that's important because a lot of these species are important to, to us. Um, you know, they're, they're foods, they um, produce material goods in the case of a lot of plants, um, medicines. Um, they underpin a lot of functions, particularly within ecosystems, flood management, climate regulation, um, nutrient cycling within soils. Um, and obviously other non-material benefits as well. We do all like to look at polar bears and look at lions and, you know, have this variety of, of life. Um, and uh, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, during the, the UN Millennium Goals, um, one of the Millennium Goals is actually to um, reduce the, um, the impact of um, the, the, the speed at which biodiversity is being lost. Um, and as he says, um, biodiversity underpins ecosystem functioning and its continued loss, therefore, has major implications for current and future human well-being. Okay, so just in conclusion. So we are in a world of massive extinctions. At the moment, one in four um, mammals are endangered in the endangered list, 25%. Um, so how ought we, our governments, ourselves, decide our preservation priorities? Um, I've put some arguments on the point. I mean, this is something that can be open to discussion um, because I don't know the answer, to be honest. It's very difficult to decide. Because ecosystems do work with so many individuals, really you need to take more of a, a bottom up, you know, what's the effect of removing bees, for example, colony collapse syndrome with bees. You remove bees, you have a whole heap of other impacts on crop pollination for certain species of crops that, that rely on bees to do that pollination. Um, so, you know, it's a whole cycle of things that we need to look at. Um, so maybe instead of conserving the most charismatic um, creatures, maybe we ought to be looking more at, you know, things like bees, which might be less exciting, um, but actually are more important to us um, economically. Um, biologists and conservationists ought to work to preserve species before subspecies. Um, so again, things like crossing those chickens to save the... Um, save that particular species. You lose the subspecies as such because you're sort of um, mixing, um, you've got like a dilution of, of those genes, but you do save that genetic variation within the species as a whole. Um, and that we ought to save habitats before species or subspecies. So it's sort of looking at it at each of those levels. Um, and just another nice quote I like from um, 
a great guy, a naturalist and an author, um, Edward Wilson. Um, the worst thing that will probably happen, in fact, is already well underway, is not energy depletion, economic collapse, conventional war or the expansion of totalitarian governments. As terrible as these catastrophes would be for us, they can be repaired in a few generations. The one process now going on that will take millions of years to correct is loss of genetic and species diversity by the destruction of natural habitats. This is the folly our descendants are least likely to forgive us. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>
then some of them will become interested in, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, we, it's, people look at worms and particular insects and they don't think they're particularly exciting, so why are they going to, to give money or put their efforts into conserving something like that? So you're right, I think they're more of a sort of poster boy for the conservation efforts in general. Um, but, you know, this is, the, this is the situation, really. They're probably less important in terms of us as a species. And again, that's the whole... Are we looking at it from a selfish point of view as to what would be best for us as humans? It's not conserving pandas. Um, there's a whole heap of other things that we ought to be doing first, but um, you know, I, I love pandas. I would hate to see a world without pandas. So um, you know, it's a, a balance. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you'll like, the, you'll like the latest. You'll, you'll like the latest um, paper that's gone to the government then, because I had this through just two days ago, um, which is um, a paper. Let's see. Um, biodiversity offsetting. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to trade in biodiversity in the same way that we trade in carbon credits. Now, how to me, you can determine what a unit of biodiversity is, <laughs> or whether if I build 10 houses here, but I pay a bit of money to conserve an area somewhere else, that that's an equivalent sort of trade-off, I think that's very troublesome. But then there are people that say that the only way to maintain this is to give it an economic value. Um, so... so you've got yeah. Yeah, but apparently this is something which happens in Australia and the US, um, and it seems to be having an effect there. It's Sorry. happening in England as well, because just outside Bristol there's a place called Portishead, and all the new housing, the people who buy them have to guarantee to pay, I think it's five pounds a month or so, so much, to to go into the reserve, which is the the next piece of country which will not be built on. Okay. They can use it, mm. but they have got to pay mm. for the warden and for its upkeep. Mm. And it was on the radio this morning. It's most interesting. Mm. That most people, yes, it's fine until they actually get a bit short of money. They <laughs> have to pay the money. Yeah. But because the reserve and the other side of that reserve, there's a school. So, of course, all the children are being taught now how to save hmm. something, at least. That's great. That yeah. might work better with it being local rather than things yeah. that are, you know, you buy a tree in, I don't know, in a rainforest or something. It, and how, who's to say that that wouldn't have been preserved anyway? Um, you yeah, know, it wouldn't... I mean, this was the point. It was going to be built over completely. Right, in, in which case, that is a fantastic no. trade-off, yeah. But, but the only way they can do it is if they can help, that the people who have got the houses have got to help to maintain. Mm. Yeah. A good way of doing it. I think, yeah, that does sound a good way. Are there, are there banks of um, other genetic, uh, exactly, there are seed banks, but are mm. there banks of other genetic material, animals, say, for the time when we might be able to bring them back? I mean, we have, we have bio banks. 
um, with cell lines. Um, as far as I'm aware, I mean, my background is in plant genetics. Um, I know a fair bit about rice seed banks and probably not a lot about others. But as far as I'm aware, Stu, can you tell me any different? But as far as I'm aware, there's no banks of, of, of particular mammal species. Mm. Yeah. They've, they've always got, I mean, they conserve it in terms of museums in, um, what do you call them, um, stuffed, um, with the prairie chickens, they actually managed to, to work out the difference in genetic diversity because they took DNA samples from a stuffed chicken from the 1930s um, to, to be able to compare the two. But, I mean, you can't use that to, to, to reintroduce genetic variation into the population, unfortunately. Seeds are, I mean, seeds are great in plants because you can... There are certain seeds which will last millions of years um, and still be viable. Um, so seed banks are a great way of conserving genetic resources in crops. Animals are much more tricky for, for obvious reasons. Yeah. yeah. Question here, and then and then, mm -hmm. that and then we'll. Do farmers get paid these days for not ploughing right to the edges of fields, so they leave a, they leave a wild land? So, so they used to leaving it fallow. Yeah. They, they certainly used to. Um, because th this country is That's in it, yeah. because when food was short after the war, the farmers were encouraged to get rid of the hedges, mm. plough everything, grow mm. wheat, grow that. And then suddenly they realised that there were no insects, which were no <laughs> birds. Yeah. It's taken 40 years yeah. to break that attitude of we must grow everything to say no. Have a thick hedge mm. and six feet either side. Exactly. For the insects. It's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance between all the species. The so. they get paid, but again, the farming program now and the NFU, they're having a terrific trouble. We need to grow more wheat because Russia has had a complete wheat failure. Mm. If we have another bad harvest in Russia, we should all be without bread. <laughs> Yeah. Except what we can grow in our own garden. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, as a note to take away from this, is that our fondness for furry animals is to do with us. Does that mean that. Oh, I love the way you should, put that. <laughs> you're know, saying that we should let some species die out, but you think our, us stopping, well, basically dooming ourselves by not saving certain species is a cause for us to go extinct? Not um, it's it, as I said, it's it's a balance because I think that the real issue, as we said earlier, was population size, and um, we can get rid of all the furry animals and grow as much crops as we can on all the land that we've got, and only preserve economically useful animals. But at some point, when we're going on a plateau like you know, we're, we're just exponential growth at the moment from the sort of turn of the century you're going to hit a point where you just don't have enough resources the planet won't have enough resources i mean i've sort of seen some things in the in the newspapers and so on where they show that you'll need like five earths or something to sustain the number of people if the population grows at the current levels um, even with technology and you know scientists working as hard as they can to improve yield and, and find new ways of um, preserving crops yeah 18 yeah, so um, I don't know whether we doom ourselves. <laughs> I think there's probably other reasons why, um, but um, 
you know, there's, there's a whole number of demographic factors that we need to consider and, and draw in. And I think population size is a big one. And hopefully, if we can rein that in, um, then there's no reason why we can't all live together with the furry animals and have the best of all worlds, really. So. Mm -hmm. I had a talk here a fortnight ago from uh, a couple of you who were there. The chap at the, uh, the University Museum who looks after their insects. And he would, he, he would tell you very much that we need to forget about the very animals. <laughs> you know, and the dung beetles, which is his particular, mm. uh, his particular area. You know, and he, he had a picture of what happened on this particular... You were there, Iris, weren't you? Yeah. The, 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 you know, mm. the, the dung beetle. Yeah, this particular island in a... In a it was, it was like a hilltop, they'd flooded this valley um, and all that was left was this kind of one hilltop um, and it wasn't, it was big enough for a colony of monkeys, I can't remember what sort of monkeys it was big enough for this colony of monkeys to live on but not big enough to sustain a population of dung beetles. But they'd all drowned anyway. They'd all drowned, that's what it was, yeah. So you had all these mm -hmm. monkeys and they were living perfectly happily eating the leaves and, uh, and whatever um, and pooing away in the way that monkeys do but no mm. dung beetles, and you have this picture of a pile of poo <laughs> about this big, because you su and you suddenly realise what an important job the dung beetles were doing, which was, uh, you know, dispersing this dung and burying it and mm. making places for the seeds to germinate and all that kind mm. of stuff, and then, you know, completely unnoticed, who would, you know, Britain mm. has, I can't remember how many species of dung beetles he said we have, but, you know, we've got plenty of species of dung beetles doing that job. Mm. Um, but then and, I would uh, say the world would be a lot poorer if there weren't furry animals in it. So yeah. <laughs> we, we might not miss them as much as the insects, but um, you know, there's something to be said for aesthetics and um, human well-being, say as well, by having been able to look at beautiful animals like that. So mm. <laughs> great. Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you. Let's give Sam a yes. round of applause. Thank you. <laughs>